Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Creative Minority. Today we're excited to have Mufti Abdullah Nana here joining us. For those who don't know, Mufti Abdullah has studied the traditional sciences of Islam. Um, he has authored several books, such as topics on the virtues of Islamic knowledge, the topic of stoning to death in Islam, legal rulings on slaughtered animals, and a book on the maidens of paradise. He's done a lot of research on the topic of Islam in Sicily, and he's putting this research to work by, by publishing a text on Islamic spirituality, which is written by a classical Sicilian scholar, which is still in its earliest phases. Thank you for joining us, Mufti Saab. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair, Brother Ahmed, for, uh, for your interest in this topic uh, and for hosting this podcast and for giving me opportunity to share uh, my limited knowledge on this topic. So the history of Sicily, Islamic history is a topic, I think, which fascinates everyone. Um, and I think it's one of the one of the broadest subjects you can study because Islam has really become a global religion, one that started out in Me Mecca and very early spread throughout Asia, Africa, Europe. And now it's it's every country in the world, every city in the world arguably has some Muslims. So uh, with such a broad topic, we d I decided for this podcast to focus on a very niche topic um, and one in which, although I have a degree in history, um, I know almost nothing about. Um, and I'm curious to know why this aspect of history isn't discussed much, which is the topic of Islam within Sicily. Yes. So uh, Mufti Saab, just, uh, just for an introduction, um, can you give like a brief explanation as to why you think the topic of Islam in Sicily is so important and why you felt the need to engage with this aspect of Islamic history? Yes. Uh, so overall, we, we are seeing throughout the world, we are seeing Islamic awakening uh, in many aspects. Uh, coming back to our roots, uh, our history, uh, our legacy. And in recent years, we've seen there's been a resurgence in, in interest, specifically in Andalus. Uh, we're seeing, for example, many books written in English. Uh, we're seeing different tours going to uh, Spain. Uh, and overall, in the last 50 years, more Muslims are aware about Andalus. Uh, for example, Alama Iqbal wrote his poetry on Andalus. Uh, for example, uh, many prominent Muslims have visited uh, Portuba, the, the, the Masjid Portuba. Uh, and overall, we're seeing Muslims are, are learning more about their roots. If you ask, ask the average Muslim today about a little bit about Muslim Spain, uh, they could probably give, me, give you maybe a paragraph. Uh, they can mention some, uh, something about the Alhambra, etc. So this is a, overall, this is a good trend. But at the same time, I, I give the parable, it's like uh, digging for treasure. We have such a rich history and we have such an amazing history. It's very sad that we as Muslims still uh, don't know about what happened. We still don't know about our history. And I would argue Sicily is one of those examples. Sicilia, uh, so the Arabic word for Sicily is Sicilia. Uh, I would advise all of us, uh, you, just look on a map, look up Google Maps and look up Sicily. Sicily is a, uh, is a country which is pretty much attached to Italy, right? We know Italy looks is shaped in a boot. Uh, on the bottom of the boot, looking like a small soccer ball, uh, mm. is the, the island of Sicily. 
So it, it is an island, but it's very close to the main to the mainland of Italy. And I would argue that the Muslim history in Sicily is comparable to that of Spain. But the sad thing is, the average Muslim has absolutely no knowledge on the Islamic history of Sicily. And to be fair, in the last hundred years or so, many books have been published on the Islamic history of Sicily. Uh, the majority of them are in Arabic. Uh, there are a few books in English. Uh, but at the same time, the, the average person doesn't have access to these books. Most of the books in English, for example, are written at an academic level. Uh, they're academic books. Uh, they're not written for the average person. They're written for specialists and uh, historians and academics. Uh, so uh, I, I think part of, uh, part of the, our overall ignorance, the, Muslim, the overall ignorance of the Muslim community with, with regards to our history is, is, a, is a contributing factor. And maybe you, you can argue Spain, uh, Andalus, uh, the Muslims were, were there for longer, arguably 900 years. Uh, and also Muslims left Andalus more recently. Right? If you, we know, of course, about uh, Ferdinand, Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, but the last Muslims were expelled from Spain around 1600. Right? So 1600 is still, in the grand mm. scheme of things, in the, in, the, uh, in, in the long history of mankind, 400 years is, is not as long. Whereas the difference in Sicily is Muslims were banished from Sicily around 1220, right? around 800, 800 years ago. Uh, so, and Muslims were, 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 were in Sicily for a shorter period of time, roughly anywhere from about 250 to 400 years. The Muslim mm -hmm. presence in Sicily was shorter, relatively shorter. And it was uh, Muslims were kicked out of Sicily and banished out of Sicily, unfortunately, uh, much longer ago, about 800 years ago. So I think, uh, I, I think th those are some contributing factors. Uh, and I, I think Muslims are slowly beginning to learn about Sicily. Right? It, it is a relatively new topic. It is a relatively uh, uh, less discussed topic. And we're s slowly seeing interest, uh, prominent American imams. Uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi was in Sicily the, a, a few weeks ago. Uh, he's been posting about this as well. So we are seeing as a small sliver of interest and we're seeing in, in increased interest regarding Sicily. Uh, but still, I would argue the average Muslim, the average Muslim has uh, almost no knowledge on Sicily, cannot name even one uh, famous Islamic scholar of Sicily and cannot even name one famous book uh, published by, by, by the scholars of Sicily. So, of course, we would hope, inshallah, that... Uh, through this podcast and through uh, various uh, tours and, and programs about Sicily, that there is increased interest. And also an interesting fact, many Muslims uh, who are originally from Sicily, who converted to Islam, or Muslims with roots from Sicily, they've reached out to me. And they've been telling me, Sheikh, uh, give us any information on Sicily. Sheikh, I would like to travel with you to Sicily. Uh, tell us about resources. We want to know about our own history. So that's also been a, a factor as well. Some of my friends uh, and, and converts to Islam with Sicilian roots have been also asking me about uh, their own history. And you know what's interesting, uh, Mufti Saab, is when it comes to Islamic history, there are certain empires which everybody knows. Everybody can list the basic facts of. You know, you have the Rashidun, you have Umayyad, Abbasids, Ottomans, uh, you know, 
Andalus is still, I think, a bit more niche than the other topics. Yes. Mughal history, I think, is one that unless you're from the subcontinent, you really <laughs> haven't studied much. Yes. But there are many different aspects of Islamic history, which I think still really need to be revived. And Sicily is among one of those, um, especially because there's a lot of lessons I think we can take from the idea from, from Islam and history and these narratives of Islam being, you know, a religion that thrived in yeah. the West. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I just want uh, Mufti Saab, if you could explain, give a brief history of uh, Islam in Sicily, um, maybe some of the classical scholarship that developed. And then after that, we can get into these major themes, inshallah. Sure, sure. So this is just a brief overview uh, on the Islamic history of Sicily. I do wish to give a disclaimer. Uh, I've spent a few hours studying, uh, studying these topics. Uh, my knowledge is not comprehensive. Uh, I haven't written a book on, this top, uh, on these topics. And there's much more to learn myself. I, I can tell our viewers and listeners, uh, up till one hour ago, I was reading and, and uh, cramming for, for this podcast. Uh, and I found out new things myself. Just this morning, I, I found out an amazing discovery about uh, the Islamic history of Sicily, which I wish to share with you as well. Uh, so by no means is my knowledge comprehensive. Uh, I'm a student as well. Just, just like in, uh, yourselves, just like Brother Ahmed, uh, I'm, I'm also learning as well. Uh, and there's a lot more to learn. I, I just want to wish to make that clear. Uh, I have a list of, I have a stack of 10 books next to me. Uh, I've started scanning through them. There's a lot more for me to learn as well. So with that being said, a brief overview, a historical overview of is Islam in, in Sicily. Uh, Islam reached Sicily relatively early, just like Andalus. And Roughly, the Muslim conquest of Sicily began in the year 827 CE. Uh, we, see, we, don't, we don't use AD. Uh, so the, according to the uh, Gregorian cal calendar, uh, uh, of the current era calendar, 827 was when the Muslims first uh, invaded Sicily with the intention of conquering Sicily. Right? So this was 827. With the Islamic calendar, this works out to roughly the year 212 after Hijri. So we're still referring to uh, the golden age of Islam uh, during the Umayyad Khilafat uh, and also uh, with students of Imam Malik. So this is something I, I, I recommend every Muslim should know more about. Al-Imam Asad ibn Furat. Al-Imam Asad ibn Furat, arguably one of the, one of the uh, founders of Islamic Sicily and one of the uh, pioneers of Islamic Sicily. So Asad ibn Furat was both a student of Imam Malik, rahimahullah. So he had the Maliki influence. And he was also a student of uh, Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan and some of the founders of the Hanafi Madhab. Right? So he, uh, so you could imagine a very prominent individual. If Imam Malik was a tabi-tabi'i, uh, this is someone who was a direct student of Imam Malik. So around the year 8, 827 CE, the Muslims... Uh, after a treaty was broken, the Muslims invaded Sicily. They, they, they had a peace treaty initially, but that peace treaty was broken. And the fatwa given on the permissibility of, of invading Sicily was given by none other than Asad, Asad ibn Farad. Uh, it, it is very unfortunate. There's very little information available about Imam Asad ibn Farad. In English, there's very little, little information. Inshallah, throughout my, my, my discussion today, Inshallah, I will be given recommendations. I hope, Inshallah, some Muslim can stand up 
some concerned individual can stand up and publish a good uh, biography in English on Imam Asad ibn Farad. Uh, unfortunately, there I haven't seen much that's published, although there are a few biographies in the Arabic language. There are a few biographies in the Arabic language, but unfortunately, nothing has been translated to English. So the Muslim conquest of uh, Sicily took place over an extended period of time. It wasn't just a one-year thing like Spain was. Uh, Spain was roughly, roughly within five years. The Muslims have had conquered most of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, the conquest of Sicily took approximately uh, somewhere somewhere uh, in, in, the, in the region of about 60 years, right? 50 to 60 years, and we're, until the Muslims conquered the entire island. And the, to, just to get an overview, uh, the end of Muslim rule and the last holdout of uh, Muslim rule on the island of Sicily was approximately the year 1091, 1091 CE, which corresponds to about 484 after Hitra. Right? So we're looking roughly uh, where, where you'd consider the rule, Islamic rule of Sicily was approximately 264 years, approximately. So the Muslim rule of Sicily was approximately 264 years. It's also worth noting that the Islamic history of Sicily is closely tied in with the Islamic history of Africa. Hmm. Right? So again, I, I recommend everyone looks at the map. Ideally, we have a, picture, a map of Sicily in the Mediterranean in front of us. So just as Sicily is very close to mainland Italy, it is also very close to Tunisia. And of course, by extension, uh, Morocco, uh, Libya, and Algeria, etc. So the Muslims, as we know, the Muslims had uh, conquered North Africa much, much earlier. And the Muslim rule of North Africa uh, was closely tied in with the Muslim rule of Egypt and uh, the various rulers that ruled over Africa. And we know this, the, the, rulers, the rule of Africa also shifted hands. So initially it was, uh, uh, th there was various dynasties that ruled over Sicily. We know connected to Africa, we had the Qalbid dynasty, uh, Banu Qalb. We also had the Aghlabids as well, Aghlabiyya. Uh, and then lastly, we also had the Fatimids as well, the Fatima Shia influence, right? Because uh, they were ruling over Egypt. Uh, and when they took over Egypt, they also took over the rule of Sicily as well. So these were the three main dynasties. Uh, the Aglabids, the Qalbids, uh, and the Fatimids. So the Muslim rule of Sicily extended for approximately 264 years, but the Muslim influence over Sicily uh, lasted much after that. So just to clarify, uh, what had happened was the Normans took over the last strong, stronghold of Islam on Sicily uh, on the year 1091. 1091, approximately 484 after Hijri. But the Muslims remained there for another approximately 150 years. And they lived under the Normans. Uh, in fact, they thrived also under the Normans. Uh, and finally, this is an important date to note as well. Muslims were officially banished from Sicily. Right? We talk about tolerance. We talk about uh, uh, coexistence and multiple religions and uh, ethnicities living together. Unfortunately, Europe, uh, Europe was not very tolerant. And uh, they forcefully kicked out all the Muslims around the year 1220 CE. So around the year 1220 CE, uh, Muslims, all Muslims were banished and expelled from Sicily.
So if we look at the total year, total influence we're, we're talking about, uh, Muslim, Muslim influence on Sicily was somewhere between 300 to 400 years, mm-hmm. approximately 300 to 400 years. And Muslim rule was much, much, was, was much less, as I explained earlier. Muslim rule was somewhere uh, around 260 years. Right, so this is a brief overview uh, of, of Muslim rule. Uh, and th- this is a summary of some, some, of, the, uh, some of the important events. Uh, also worth noting, the same imam that I mentioned, Imam Asad ibn Furat, arguably one of the founders or one of the pioneers of Islamic Sicily, he passed away in Sicily. Hmm. He passed away in Sicily. Uh, today, we don't know exactly where his grave is, but uh, various historians have mentioned the general region in Sicily where he passed away. So just imagine if a Muslim uh, travels to Sicily. I, ha- I haven't traveled there yet. Inshallah, I hope to do so soon. Uh, but imagine these great individuals who had passed away there. Some A student of Imam Malik, Rahimullah, uh, who, uh, who traveled to Sicily and also passed away there. SubhanAllah. And you know what, what, what's quite interesting is, um, you know, you talked about how uh, Muslim rule in Sicily was shorter was shorter than the period in which uh, Muslims lived there. Um, but the period after Muslims lost rule was also a very interesting time under yes. King Roger. Yes, yes. Uh, so here, let me keep my my props ready. Uh, so this is this is another fact every Muslim should be aware of. And in fact, one of the great books of Islamic civilization. So, uh, so Roger. Uh, the Norman rule of, uh, of Sicily was very uh, fascinating. And in fact, there should be a separate study just on the Muslims under the Norman rule uh, and the influence of William and Roger and Roger II. Right? So very interesting. These were rulers that spoke fluent Arabic. Hmm. Many people don't know this. And because the Muslims had ruled over Sicily for 260, 260 years up until, until that point, these were individuals that grew up under Muslim rule grew up under Islamic influence. Uh, according to some reports, wore Islamic clothing. Uh, they designed palaces and they designed uh, art, buildings according to Islamic architecture. Uh, they were very much influenced by Islamic customs, Islamic cuisine, etc. Uh, and they patronized Islamic scholarship. Uh, so Kitab al-Rajr, very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds really weird. Kitab al-Rajr. Right. Roger's American name. Roger's a, a English name. So what book would be named Kitab Roger? Right? Uh, so Kitab Roger is a very famous book, uh, which which all Muslims should be aware of. I have a copy in front of me. Right? I've kept one <laughs> right here. Uh, so King Roger, as, as he is known, one of the Norman kings, he commissioned a book on geography. And what he did, he wanted to attract the the top and the best of the best. He wanted to attract the top talent. So he would uh, invite top scholars from the Islamic world to come to Sicily and to work for him. So one of these scholars was Muhammad ibn Abdullah, al-Sharif al-Idrisi. Al-Sharif al-Idrisi. He was not originally from Sicily, but... He lived in Sicily for 15 years, and King Roger hired him to work on this book for 15 years. Uh, one of the, you could say, groundbreaking and one of the most uh, uh, innovative books on 
geography in the world. Of course, the world map of Idrisi is also famous. Uh, it was a map ahead of its time. Uh, you, you, if anyone who's interested, you can search it on online as well. The map we'll, of Idrisi. We'll add a picture of it uh, yes. in the video. Yes, inshallah. Inshallah. So uh, this, is, this is a very detailed book. My, my version here is about 600 pages. The title is Nuzat al-Mushtaq fi ikhtiraf al-Afaq. So uh, you, you translate it roughly. Uh, the pleasure of the person who is interested in traveling throughout the world. Right? A book, kind of a, a guidebook to the different regions in the world, the peoples of the world, and a map on how to travel throughout the world. Right? So it was a guidebook written, and it was commissioned by this non-Muslim, uh, by this, this Norman king, uh, who had this interest in, uh, in the Muslim world, who had this interest in Africa, and who commissioned this uh, knowledgeable Muslim uh, to, to write this amazing book. Right? So there's much more can be said about this book as well. Uh, but very famous, very, very, you could say that's just, just a sample of this fascinating relationship between the Norman kings and Islam and Islamic scholarship. And likewise, they, you could say Islam thrived under these Norman kings. Uh, Islam thrived, scholarship also thrived. Muslims were given a, a freedom to practice their religion with a few exceptions, with a few minor restrictions. But overall, they were, they were, uh, their, their identity was preserved, their scholarship was preserved, their masjids were preserved. Uh, and for much later or much longer after Muslim rule, Muslim rule ended, uh, the Muslim influence in Sicily was very much alive. And Islam was also very much alive in Sicily uh, during Norman rule. And, you know, so for those who don't know, Idrisi's book um, was the greatest book on geography up until its time. Yes. Um, no, but people had people had attempted to draw a map of the entire world uh, with, you know, from our perspective, you know, with hindsight, it's it's uh, it's easy to look at that work and, and see the mistakes. But, you know, you have to imagine they're living in a, the, the way Idrisi composed his world map was he would speak with travelers and he would ask them about the, you know, the different sizes, the different types of lands for all the places that he went. And he ended up drawing his map, which um, is actually, uh, it's, it's actually the upside down. Yes. And so, uh, and what's interesting is at the center of the map, he puts Mecca and Medina yes. because for him, that was the center of the earth. Uh, earth. And uh, something that's interesting when you read geography um is that you realize that the construction that the map that we use today is really it's is a social construct in the sense mm -hmm. that where everything is placed and the sizes of things. So I remember when uh, when I was doing my undergraduate, um, we had a there was a day in the year where the school would sell posters. Interesting. And they would always have a poster of this map in which Australia was the center of the world. <laughs> And everybody would look at the map and they would say, why would they put an incorrect map here? Australia is obviously on the east. It's not in the center. And it was really like a almost like a cognitive dissonance to people because they started to realize that, you know, the way that our map is constructed is not necessarily what exactly the world is because the world is always turning. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, very fascinating. And, and, and as, as you rightfully pointed out, Idris was ahead of his time and his his book and his maps were relied on for hundreds of years. And also, just to put things in perspective, uh, where Idrisi was, lived under Norman rule, uh, and roughly that was 850 years ago. 
So mm. yes, if you compare his map to our maps, yes, it, it looks very primitive. But for his time, 850 years ago, uh, his work was groundbreaking, uh, and it was it was the most reliable map for hundreds of years. So that, that's also worth noting as well. And so now this brings us to the important topic of um, this narrative, which has been constructed by people like it's a it's a narrative which has existed for arguably more than a thousand years. But it's this clash of civilizations narrative that Muslims and Christians have always been at odds with one another since the moment Islam was born and that there's always this antagonistic nature that Islam is always the enemy or Christianity is always the enemy. But what I find quite fascinating is whenever you look at the history of Islam in Europe, um, when Muslims rule in particular, um, usually you saw that there was a level of tolerance that existed there that perhaps superseded the tolerance in other places in the Muslim world, but definitely superseded the tolerance in the European world. So for instance, if we look at Andalusia um, yes. under the Caliph Abdul Rahman, that early period, um, Muslims, Christians, Jews all worked together and produced a vibrant civilization with something like Sicily now, when you begin to read of the relationship of King Roger and El Idrisi, it's almost as if like they're very intimate close friends you know he, he told he patronized Idrisi for 15 years he paid his salary for 15 years just to write this extraordinary masterpiece or if we look at um the ottoman empire and its treatments of christians and jews and how um jews in europe would write uh, jews jews in the ottoman empire would write letters to jews in europe saying come to muslim lands because we're treated far better here so this this narrative i think is really is, is really dangerous and really at the heart of, I think, why there's so much antagonism between Muslims and Christians. But studying, I think, a case study like Sicily um, and reading about, you know, obviously there's, there's always exceptions in history. Every empire had its problems, but overwhelmingly just seeing the relationship, um, I think, really is pr a proof that these different religions can easily live together with one another. Yes. Uh, th those are very valid points. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of lessons for us to learn from history as well. I think this is one of the uh, take-home messages from uh, historical podcast and even studying history, uh, the lessons we can take. Uh, so uh, it, I, I do want to give a reference to a book, uh, but, but Spain is, uh, Andalus is also an example as well, uh, as you mentioned, of this, uh, of, of clearing, clearing up reality and showing that these religions can coexist. So for hundreds of years uh, in Andalus, Muslims, Christians, and Jews coexisted pre peacefully. Uh, a book I recommend reading, A Vanished World. In fact, uh, so this, this uh, A Vanished World, I forget the name of the author, uh, but the book focuses specifically on this aspect of coexistence. And we're not talking about for one year. We're not talking about for five years. We're not even talking about for one century. We're talking about for hundreds of years. And, uh, and I think the the to dispel this myth of the clash of civilizations, see how Muslims approached coexistence. When they took over Spain, they didn't banish the, the Christians. They didn't banish the Jews. They didn't massacre the Christians. They didn't massacre the Jews. Rather, they incorporated them into uh, their, their, their country. And they used the Jews and they used many of the Christians as, and, and the former officials as administrators as rulers as mayors etc and they they took the best from all these different civilizations and eth ethnicities 
Jews thrived in Spain. Sephardic Jews thrived in, in Spain. Uh, and when the Christians took over, when the Europeans took over, what happened? Right, six, six, 1600, uh, the edict was given to banish uh, all the Muslims. And as we know, uh, uh, Bishop Jimenez, he burned thousands of Muslim books. Same, same thing in uh, same thing in Sicily. We, we, see, we see that same parallel. When Muslims took over, they didn't banish uh, mm -hmm. the, the existing uh, Greek population. They didn't banish the Jews. Right? They they incorporated them. Uh, they they worked with them. They respected them and they even protected them. Right? We talk about Dimma uh, mm -hmm. and Jizya and so on. So Muslims would take on the responsibility of protecting the Jews and Christians from invaders, uh, and they lived with them, as you mentioned. Uh, no one's claiming that the relationship was perfect. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, at least uh, environment of tolerance did exist. And there are many examples, as, we, as you just mentioned right now, of Idrisi and, and, uh, and, and, and King Roger. There's hundreds of similar examples. Right? Cooperation, collaboration. Uh, uh, Maimonides working under, the, for, for example, the Muslim, Muslim rulers and Muslim physicians. Mm -hmm. uh, Maimonides being patronized by um, Muslim rulers and and uh, and Muslim prominent Muslim uh, uh, in individuals. So this this coexistence and not even coexistence, uh, collaboration. Right? It, it was it was found under Muslim rule, and, and again in, in Sicily we we as Europe became more uh, uh, close-minded and more, uh, more more radical, they banished all the Muslims from from Sicily, and this is do documented. So the Normans were were more tolerant, they were more inclusive, but as Europe went in a different direction, uh, they had all the Muslims banished from Sicily. Right? They had all the Muslims banished from Sicily. So, that we, so we have a lot of lessons to learn from, uh, from, uh, Ottoman, from, from the Ottoman Empire, uh, from Sicily as well, and from Spain as well, that all these religions, even during medieval times, even 100 years ago, were able to not only coexist, but to, to, to work together and mm -hmm. to, be, to be collaborative. And that's an excellent point, Mufti Saab. You know, we talk about this idea of tolerance and coexistence, and we find a number of evidences in Islamic history um, with many empires where the Muslims and other minority groups were able to work together. But the interesting thing which you just mentioned is they also were able to collaborate with one another. And, you know, it brings an interesting point up of whenever we begin to see the development of Islamic scholarship, um, when we study Islamic intellectual history, we also see that during those during those during the rule when Muslims were producing these remarkable advances in the realms of astronomy, chemistry, sociology, economics, um, all of these different sciences within the same empire, the Christians were also contributing. Yes. So, for instance, um, during what, what what has now been deemed the golden age of Islam under Baghdad, uh, many of the great writers were Christians. Yes. Many of them were Jews. In fact, I think the lead translator, I think, was uh, Hunayn ibn Ishaq, who was yes. a Christian. Yes, you're right. And he was, he was the main one responsible for translating a lot of these Greek texts, mm -hmm. a lot of these Persian texts into Arabic, which the Muslims then used and developed. And the same thing, I believe, has also uh, happened in Spain. Um, yes. Under uh, Spain, uh, under Muslim rule as well, you mentioned Maimonides. Maimonides mm -hmm. served, I think, uh, he was, he was, he was uh, like the right-hand man of the... Uh, of the caliph and people actually don't know but Maimonides who is the Jewish scholar actually s served as the physician for Salahuddin al-Ayyubi um which is a which is a very uh, strange fact but in in Spain what we uh, what happened after Muslims left is um 
I forget the ruler's name, but he also commissioned their own translation movement hmm. where they translated Alfonso. everything. Yeah, Alfonso the Wise. Yeah, King Alfonso, King. right? Alfonso, where yeah. they translated everything from Spanish now into Arabic. And the same thing happened in the subcontinent as well with uh, rulers such as Akbar when they began their own translation movement. They, he, they created their own committees, uh, which consisted of Muslims, Hindus, and Jews as well. So not only do we have these examples in Islamic history of coexistence and toleration, but we also have this collaboration, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I think I would I would contend that the Islamic civilization was able to thrive intellectually was that was its inability its its ability to incorporate its minorities and use them to develop their scholarship. Yes. So I do wish to share one of the most fascinating things I've come across, and it, of course it, it expands on your 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 point. Uh, this aspect of collaboration and this aspect of Islamic civilization giving to other civilizations and. The, our current Western civilization, uh, with all our technology and uh, uh, developments and, uh, and higher aspects of civilization, uh, I would argue uh, that we are highly indebted to Islamic civilization. And I want to give one specific example of how Islam in Sicily contributed to our, uh, our current civilization and our current accomplishments in the realm of civilization. So this is absolutely fascinating. It is a little bit controversial, uh, but I'm confident it's, it stands on solid academic footing, right? So there's an individual by the name of John Maqdisi. John Maqdisi, and he, he's written a formal paper on this, right? So it's called The Origins of Common Law, right? So just one example of, uh, of how collaboration has benefited the world and how it's changed the world for, for, uh, for, for the better. So in, and this also was uh, under Norman rule, right? So if, if we look in history, the Normans, just as they ruled over Sicily, they were also ruling over England, right? They're also ruling over England. And when, and during this time, we, we mentioned approximately 200 years uh, where Muslims uh, existed in Sicily, they were not ruling over Sicily, but they had their own qadi. And they were given freedom of religion for those a few hundred, 200 years or so. Uh, and it was opportunity for interaction between uh, upfront and close personal interaction between Europe and Islam. And keep in mind, we're talking about shortly after the Crusades, the era of the Crusades, where there was a lot of hatred. There, there was a whole uh, clash of civilizations. But now finally in Sicily, two religions and two cultures, they were not, no longer clashing. For a few hundred years, they were closely interacting. And that you can say that close interaction created synergies and it absolutely changed the entire world. And I'll give you one amazing example of this. Uh, the origins of common law. Right? So uh, John Maqdisi has written specifically on where this our modern uh, system of, uh, of justice and our common law system of, of uh, criminal uh, of courts uh, and legal proceedings, etc. Where did it come from? So keep in mind, as I mentioned in Sicily, for a few hundred years, the Muslim legal system was operating. And more specifically, the Maliki legal system was operating. Mm -hmm. The Qadis were present, right? The, the Muslim Qadis were there. They would rule among the Muslim, uh, within the Muslim community. They would have cases come to them. And at the same time, the Norman rulers were closely observing this. 
the Norman rulers were there, they were closely observing this. And as we know, they were also their, their, their relatives and their fellow rulers were also there in England. So John Muckdessy proposes this and he gives about 10 to 15 evidences as well. So I'm not, a, number one, as a disclaimer, I'm not a Maliki specialist in Maliki fiqh. Um, and I don't know the inner, inner workings of, of the Maliki Madhab. However, the Malikis have a system known as Lafif. Right? So individuals can look this up. And please, you can ask your Maliki scholars about this. Lafif is a system which includes 12 individuals. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. So the Lafif system, uh, 12 individuals. So it's, it's similar. Uh, and, uh, someone who studied fiqh will know Qasama. Like Qasama is a, is a chapter in, in books of fiqh. If a crime occurs, a murder occurs, and you don't know who the murderer is, right? There's a system in place. You will take oaths from 50 people. So the hadith mentioned 50 people. So the Madikis, it seems the Madikis took a variation of this, and they chose a system of 12 of your peers judging in a case for you. 12 of your peers judging in a case for you. So, and this system was, was existing in Sicily, right? And the Norman rulers saw this up front and, and uh, in, 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 in person. Shortly during this period of time, in fact, the names of George Muktis, uh, John Muktisi has recorded the names about within this period of time of Norman rule, this jury uh, trial by your peers suddenly appeared in England. It suddenly appeared. And even if you, ask, if you ask many specialists today, it's very difficult to explain where it came from. Mm -hmm. even, the, even the founders, uh, even legal experts can't explain where the number 12 came from. So John Muktisi gives about 15 reasons. And he says, the closest parallel, the closest precedent to the jury system as we know it of uh, being, being judged by 12 of your peers, there's 15 similarities between the Maliki Lafif and the jury system. Now, no one can say for sure, right? We, we don't have direct evidence. Uh, XYZ person said, I took the, uh, the modern jury system from the Maliki Lafif. We don't have an explicit statement. But there, there are many similarities. And John Muktisi has presented strong arguments and, and about 10 to 15 similarities uh, proving that the only place where the, the modern jury system could have come from was the Maliki Lafif. Subhanallah, you know it, it, it's interesting. Uh, I was once watching, uh, I think, Democracy Now, um, and there was a speaker, uh, not on the show, but there was a speaker they were discussing who was um, demonizing uh, Sharia, like the, the legal framework of Islam. And one of the one of the presenters responded by mentioning this precise point that our our, our whole concept of that our notion of twelve people within uh, the jury system actually comes from Islamic law. Um, which at that time I, I was always looking for a reference for where they got it. And I know that when Napoleon got to Egypt, um, Napoleon used to sit with the scholars um, and they used to teach him about Islamic law. I mean, there's a beautiful book titled Napoleon's Egypt by Juan Cole, if people want to know more. But um, when Napoleon was actually leaving e uh, Egypt, um, he had t taken a bunch of Maliki fiqh with him uh, back to France. And some have then made that the correlation that that the whole that Napoleonic law, um, which in places still in America like Louisiana still use, 
uh, that Napoleonic law was heavily influenced by Maliki fiqh. So Western law was influenced by Islamic law. So the same people that demonize Islamic law are the same ones who use it in their justice system. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and to expand on that, the jury system is only one example. So to be fair, John Maktasi, uh, he's written multiple t- uh, articles on this topic. And there, he, he proves many other aspects of our legal system were also uh, ha- seem to have Islamic roots. For example, beyond a reasonable doubt. Hmm. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Rasulullah said this, mm-hmm. right? that uh, if, there's a, if there's a doubt, you must acquit. Right? <laughs> if, you, if it's a doubt, you must throw it out. Right? This, uh, there's Islamic basis for this, this concept of beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, many other aspects. And many other aspects, even of uh, legal theory, uh, come from, uh, arguably come from Islamic origins. Uh, also, a, a few interesting um, uh, experiences that I had. Uh, some of us might remember around 2013 to 2014, there were the anti-Sharia bills. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, all over America, all these states, uh, they're so scared of Islamic law taking over, creeping Sharia, creeping, creeping Sharia, creeping Sharia. <laughs> right? So they... Uh, they passed these bills, and during that time, I had the opportunity here in California. I believe it was uh, UCF, uh, USF, USF, University of San Francisco, or UCSF, one of the two. Right. So, the law school here uh, in, in San Francisco, they have a comparative uh, comparative law class, and in there they discuss uh, Talmudic law or Mosaic law, and they also have a section on Islamic law. So they gave me opportunity to be a guest speaker. So I, for about two years, I went there. And the second year I went there, this, these anti-Sharia bills were being, uh, mm. were being passed. So this whole America was uh, up in, uh, in a craze out of fear of sh- Sharia. So I had a presentation there. And many people from outside decided to come because they wanted to hear my take on Sharia. And alhamdulillah, I, I gave some of these examples to them. Uh, I, I explained kind of the, some of the perspectives of, of Islamic law. Uh, and it was cool. It was, it was law school students. Uh, so I told them one on 50, right? It's, it's kind of like a debate, one mm-hmm. on 50. And now I had opportunity to kind of uh, educate them some more on Islamic law and how it's closer to them than they think, right? Sharia is closer to them than they think, even in terms of our endowment system, for example. A Merton College, even our legal system, academic chairs, uh, 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 diplomas, etc. even the cap and gown, there's so many similarities. I, I think people would be shocked. And, and you know, just... the, the cap and gown is a very interesting one because I, I was at my I was at my graduation uh, a couple months ago. Um, Mashallah, excellent, excellent. Mubarak. And I, I was I was you know I was wearing the hat. I was wearing the uh, the, uh, the the thobe, right? I was wearing the thobe. <laughs> um, and I remember uh, there was this one lecture at, at Oxford um, where this individual had mentioned that uh, that the clothes actually uh, or, or originate from Andalusia. And uh, the Muslim students, when they would walk there, they would always have a Quran on their head. Subhanallah. Um, to, Subhanallah. To, to remind themselves to always be humble, that the Quran is always on top of them. And the Quran take, and so eventually that, that's the shape that the, that the ca- cap wore. And the, the clothes that they wear is literally a one thobe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's like close to what you're wearing right now. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting. And then the idea of like the chair. Like so and so holds a chair. That was a yes. chair that the scholar would teach on, yeah. uh, which then got its way into Europe. So there's just so many fascinating examples of like 
the development, uh, the influence that Islam and Islamic civilization had on development of Western civilization, subhanAllah. Yes, yes. No, it, it, it's a fascinating topic. And I, I think maybe the take-home message for all of us is uh, the importance of knowing history and, and the more importance of educating ourselves. We Americans, uh, American Jews, American Christians, West, Europe, we are closer to Islam than we think. And I think it's opening up our ideas, opening up our eyes, seeing the contributions. Uh, arguably, the Muslims fuel the res Renaissance. Uh, these translations, as, as you pointed out earlier, of uh, Greek texts, uh, the, the, the translations of uh, medical texts. Uh, arguably, the world as we know it today, and uh, even numeral system, numeral system as well, uh, coding, uh, cri cryptography. Right. This one. Uh, this is a separate topic within itself. Muslims wrote extensively on cryptography 400, 500 years ago. So the world as we know it today owes a lot to Islam. We're not saying everything, but mm -hmm. the world as we know it owes a lot to Islam. And I think that speech of Carly Fiorina, it's also worth noting as well. Uh, it's a very, very uh, interesting speech. She, 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 starts, she starts off, I'll begin by telling the story of a civilization. A civilization of innovation, a civilization of ideas, a civilization of knowledge. And then she gives example examples and she makes it seem like she's talking about uh, the Western civilization. Uh -huh. She goes, I'm not. So anyone could look, look up that speech. Uh, but there, there's, there's a lot of books on this genre as well. Lost mm -hmm. Islamic History, 1001 Inventions. Uh, there, there's a lot of information on this genre. Right. I, I think now, though, we're at, we're at an interesting point because... Um, you know, within Muslim circles now, we, we we always like to talk about this 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 golden age. We like to talk about how Muslim civilization has produced some of the world's greatest inventions in the realms of hospitals, uh, astronomy, uh, 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 medicine, all of these different fields, and that the and that global civilization. It wasn't just the West. Everybody took the works from Muslims, um, and I think in the subcontinent, Akbar did a lot in terms of translating many of these texts into Sanskrit um, and so forth. But now we're at a point now where we are benefiting from the West. Um, and I think by, I think sometimes we have a habit to kind of um, demonize the West, but I mean, many of the great inventions that have come in today's age have come from the development from the West. And there's an interesting book called um, Factfulness, which discusses that, the, the, the world today is significantly better than it was in the past in terms of uh, uh, developments of medicine, in terms of our, our infrastructure and so forth. And I think we really have to give credit to the West for creating many of these great institutions which have significantly benefited us. And like one thing Mufti Saab, I think about a lot, which I think many people don't think about, is that historically, a woman would need to have about, uh, would have to get pregnant around eight, nine, or maybe even 10 times just to give birth to maybe wow. three, four kids, right? And we see this in the life of the Prophet wasallam, with, with so many, all of his children passing away with the exception of Fatima, but many of them passing away when they were extremely young, right? And in today's age, you know, alhamdulillah, with the great developments in medicine, it's now it's become rare. It's gone from being the norm to being something that's rare. And so, you know, credit should be given when due to the West for these inventions. Yes. And I think uh, th that's why this balanced approach is important and uh, understanding this concept of collaboration. And so, mm -hmm. uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, 
Western civilization, as we as we know it today, uh, we, we, it, it's it's a team effort. And when when the world makes a seem this this clash of civilizations uh, for the last two two thousand years, the Muslim world and the and the Western world and the Christian world has always been at odds, and they've been arch enemies till till the end. And our civilization, as we know it today, itself bears testimony that uh, it, it, it was it, there was collaboration. And just as, as you mentioned, acknowledging that, maybe the example we can give is, is a relay team, right? Uh, hmm. Hussein Bolt's relay team, that world-breaking record, right? So, so I, I follow those, some sports. So, <laughs> for example, Hussein Bolt's uh, the relay team that broke the world record. So now the example, so people talk about Hussein Bolt, but he had three other individuals who were helping him as well. And that relay team could not have won without the three other individuals. So in the same way, uh, just as the West is indebted to uh, Muslims, right? Because they they ran the third leg, but now the anchor the, the anchor leg was run by the, the the Western civilization, and they 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 took it to the next level. They took the Muslim uh, research. They took what, what what the Muslim world had had done, and they expanded on it and they improved it. Uh, mm -hmm. So so it really, it's 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 a team effort. It, it, it's a team effort, and as you said, credit should be given from both sides, right? And when when the relay team wins the wins the race, uh, just as the anchor mm -hmm. leg Hussein Bolt he he goes and congr congr uh, congratulates the others, they also go and congratulate him, and then mm -hmm. they do a group hug and kum sing kumbaya. I'm joking, Rob. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's yeah. but what, what but but to be honest, when we look at the Islamic civilization and we look at the incorporation of the tech, the Greek text, the Egyptian text, the Persian text, the Indian text, the Chinese text, all these texts that came to the Muslim world, the Muslims never, the Muslims always gave credit yes. to these civilizations. They never said Aristotle was an Arab. Yes. They always, they, they, they recognized Brahma Gupta was from India. They acknowledged it and they built on the ideas. But the unfortunate reality is that when these ideas did get to Europe, Many, not all, but many of the European thinkers divorced the Muslim yes. names and the Muslim contributions as if they were the ones who were behind these ideas. And, um, you know, it, it really just shows the, the intellectual dishonesty yes. um, of wanting to claim other people's ideas as their own. Yeah. No, there, uh, I have a book as, as well uh, in my library. It talks about what is taught in school and what is the reality. Right? And it goes through maybe about uh, uh, 20 or 30 categories of inventions and, uh, and different prizes that were given to people. And, and maybe one of the famous is uh, Abbas ibn Farnas uh, in flying. Mm -hmm. right? We talk about the first person to fly. Uh, he, he did so in Cordoba maybe 400, 500 years before the Wright brothers uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and many of these fields, uh, when we talk about kind of this relationship between the Western civilization and the Islamic civilization, uh, if the relationship would be better if credit would be given where credit is due. And when you're purposely hiding information and, and misleading people about who discovered uh, a certain theory or optics or so on, uh, then, then it leads to a lot of misinformation. And it also leads to um, mistrust and it, it leads mm -hmm. to uh, looking down on Islamic civilization. So I, I think mm -hmm. the world would be a different place if, as you had mentioned, mm -hmm. if we give credit where credit is due, and we acknowledge the contribution, acknowledge the discoveries of the Muslim scientists, which is, which is all documented. Right? Mm -hmm. All this information is documented. 1001 Inventions is an excellent read. Excellent. Lost Islamic History is also an Islamic read. Lost Islamic History was, was even recommended by President, uh, former Prime, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan. Uh, so 
there's a number of these books that are out there that people can educate themselves. Uh, another book was The Hidden Debt of Islamic Civilization. Mm-hmm. And there are many books of, the, of this genre. And mm-hmm. I would argue perhaps one of the greatest, as you pointed out, one of the greatest intellectual thefts, one of the greatest intellectual thefts was hiding the contributions made by Islamic civilization to Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, you know, there, there is so much more that we don't know. There's so much more that even the Islamic civilization is indebted to the Indian civilization and the Chinese and the Persian and the Egyptian. And there's just, there's so much, but from whatever we have, I, I think the main point is that if the research was presented to us, yes. that these ideas came from this civilization and we knew it was, then we wouldn't have an issue at all with just mentioning um, that it came from there. And that's why, you know, one of the, one of my favorite hadiths from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is um, yeah. Right? That wisdom, it's translated as wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, he is most deser- deserving of it. So when Muslims took these ideas, when they were reading these Greek texts and they were saying like, like, you know, this is phenomenal stuff. They weren't saying it's from the Greeks, so therefore we should throw it away. But rather they incorporated and they built on these incredible ideas, which then Europe took. took. And then, you know, in um, in uh, God's Crucible, um, the book God's Crucible, uh, the author won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, not for that book, but for his work. But in that book, he talks about how when Ibn Sina's works got to France, he said France was turned into a firestorm. <laughs> the whole city was like burnt on fire. It's, it's a metaphor to how powerful Ibn Sina was. He just shook up all of Europe, right? That, that, that was a Muslim. So just looking at how much of an influence these ideas have had, I think one can spend the whole life. I mean, we've probably spent you know, a good amount of time on it and we feel like there's so much more that we don't yeah. know. And uh, I roughly, have, just on that genre, kind of the, the Muslim contribution towards Western civiliz- uh, to Western civilization, reviving the Muslims influencing the re- Renaissance, the Muslim influence on medicine. Uh, there, I, I have a collection of about 25 books. So that gives wow. you an idea. And I haven't read them all myself, right? I've scanned through them, uh, but that gives you an idea. And bringing it back to our, our original topic as well. Uh, there's a book I'm trying to get a hold of uh, I'm, I'm asking my contacts to help me with. Uh, it's specifically on, I think, Doratul Muslimin fil Andalus, Doratul Muslimin fil Tib something to that effect. Uh, so there's a very specific book uh, as we're talking about Sicily, how Sicily contributed to, uh, to uh, medicine in Europe, something to that effect. Hmm. Right, so I'm trying to get a hold of it. Uh, it's it's uh, there's no PDF available online. The book is not available for sale online. Uh, I'm trying to use my connections. Uh, I think it's a, a master's thesis. I think I think it was a master's thesis. Hmm. So I'm trying to get a hold of it because I'm so interested in the topic. Uh, but that's as you mentioned as well, but Ahmed, it's only one snippet hmm. of the overall contribution of uh, of Muslims to Western civilization. Even Sicily is just one small snippet. Right? Okay. And there's so much more to learn. There, there's so, so much more that's been written. Uh, we're only learning about it. It's, it there's new information coming, uh, uh, coming about, new books being written uh, every year. Uh, it's only slowly coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's what um, one of the most humbling things is just knowing that, you know, you know nothing yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Right? Allah says, we've only given you a little bit of knowledge. I mean, you know, the amount of books that 
you want to read on this subject. I'm sure you have, you know, dozens of books, but the amount of time that you're going to get to read through them, um, at best, you know, you can, you can skim through them, but it just shows you, you know, that for, for me, it's just, it's just, it, it's so phenomenal because subhanAllah, you just realize that, you know, you combine all of the billions of billions of books that have been written today. Um, and, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the information in all of them and much more than that. And, and briefly, I just wanted to, uh, uh, going back to Sicily, and also just uh, with, with the goal of motivating people and inspiring people to learn more about this topic. Right? Uh, going back to Sicily and the level of knowledge in Sicily, the number of books written by scholars of Sicily, the great scholars of Sicily. Right? So just going back to our topic, our own history, our own legacy, uh, there's an excellent book I came across uh, there's a PDF available online, uh, but I think all scholars, students of knowledge, and Muslims should be aware of this book, and hopefully someone can translate it to English. Right? So it's the title of the book is Al Hayatul Almiya Fisqili Islamia. So the the not uh, the level of knowledge or the academic life uh, of Muslims in Sicily. And it covers various topics, everything we've been talking about. It covers medicine, it covers tafsir, it covers hadith, it covers fiqh, it covers history, and the contributions of the scholars of Sicily in, in these fields. The book is 600 pages long. And I, the fact that I came across it, right, I was, I accidentally came across it when I was going through another book, they, they referenced this book, uh, but it's, it's a lost treasure, right? 600 pages, uh, really highlighting to us, what was the level of knowledge in Sicily? Also worth for us to think about. Sicily is relatively small compared to Spain. Right? The total population I'm estimating of Sicily at that time was not more than maybe 500,000. Right? We're, we're talking about the middle, medieval world. We're talking about roughly uh, 827 to 1220. But for, for the amount of Muslims that were there, right, the amount of knowledge, the amount of scholars, the proficiency in the Arabic language, the fact that the Arabic language took over the island, and the amount of books that are published here is really amazing. And among the, the unique things that I found out, one of the prominent commentaries of Sahih Muslim. Mm -hmm. So this is Qadi Ayyab has published a famous commentary. You could say the top three or four commentaries of Sahih Muslim. Of course, Imam Nawawi's commentary is very famous. This is probably uh, number two or three. Ikmal al-Mu'lim bifuay the Muslim. So Qadi Ayad, uh, he's famous. He was from Andalus, right? He was uh, from Andalus. But the, I found this out today, right? I'm not talking about these lost treasures and discovering this lost lost treasure uh, every day, a bit by bit. So the original version of this book, the or original version of this book, was written by a scholar of Sicily, hmm. right? It was written by a scholar of Sicily. Uh, he, he wrote a book, uh, Al Mu'lim. Before the Muslim. And he was from Mazara. Right? So if you look on Google Maps, Mazara is a, is a city on Sicily, which is facing to, directly facing Tunisia, to, to Tunis. Right? Uh, so we, many of us use this book. I've heard about this book. I've used this book over the, over the years. I didn't know that the original came from a Sicilian scholar. Right? Um. And this is just one example. Right? So a few quotes I, I, I wish to share. Uh, scholars throughout history have mentioned the intellectual legacy and the knowledge-based legacy of, of Sicily and the scholars of Sicily. 
Many great scholars came from there uh, in, in various fields. Uh, some of the names we have mentioned. Uh, but another book that I have, Marjum al-Ulama wa shu'ara Right, eh? Kind of a, uh, a list of scholars, an Arabic book on the list of scholars in, in Sicily and the famous scholars and their contributions. Uh, it's about 266 pages. Right, so, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just maybe uh, summarize one quote. Uh, Ansari, right, so Ansari was a, was a famous historian who wrote a book called Nukhbat al-Dahr. So he, he mentioned, you could, if you were to summarize Islam in Sicily and the legacy of Islam in Sicily, he said, so he, he, he said, while Sicily was under Muslim rule, he said, the city, the country was brimming with scholars, was overflowing with scholars, Udaba, writers, uh, literary experts, Fudala, experts in different fields, uh, prominent individuals. And the com comparison he gives is very, uh, the wording he uses is very uh, telling. And in fact, it's very uh, significant. <coughs> and the comparison he gives, Mudahiyat al-Andalus. He makes his uh, comparison to Andalus and Islamic Spain. And I think the comparison, anyone who just wants to summarize Islamic Sicily, I would say it's a little Andalus. This is the comparison I would give. Right? So mm -hmm. the small Andalus, uh, the, the, the minor Andalus, the smaller version of Islamic Spain uh, is, is, is Islamic Sicily. And, you know, it, it's interesting when, you know, when you study Islam in Sicily, Islam in Andalus, um, Islam in Trinidad, Islam in Malaysia, is that, you know, and this is really at the heart of what I really wanted to get through in this podcast is that there's a lot of virtues of the Arabs, right? And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam praised it, but Islam in and of itself is not an Arabian religion. Um, Islam is a religion that has been to every part of the world, right? Islam is, is, you can be a European Muslim. And, you know, we, our last podcast was actually on the life of one of the late great Muslims, um, the president of Bosnia, um, uh, president uh, Izid Begovic, who said that, you know, my European values and my Islam, I feel are one, right? Mm. There, there is no contra uh, contradictory. And I feel one of the ways that Islam really spreads is that when Islam goes to every land, whether it goes to the subcontinent, whether it goes to Russia, whether it goes to West Africa, East Africa, or now in the Americas, in Europe, is that it's always able to successfully indigenize in a way in which people look at it and they see that uh, the by adopting the religion, I'm not really changing that part of myself. And it was interesting. Um, I was just reading about the history of Islam in Japan. Um, huh. Japan and China. And what was the interesting thing is that when Islam got there, they had trouble in trying to translate a lot of the words into Chinese or Japanese because of their ideograms. And so what they would do is they would alter the words a little bit to fit the Japanese context. So for instance, when they would talk about um, Allah, um, initially they started to use the word Allah, but then later they started to use the word Shanti, which means the one in the heavens. Um, when it came to the Prophet wasallam, they didn't call him a prophet because they didn't have the lexical term, but instead they called him a sage. Uh, when it came to the Quran, they called it the special book. And when they did that, the academics said Islam began to spread rapidly because people started to realize that 
this is similar to, you know, they're speaking, you know, hadith uh, right? Speak to people at their level. And whenever, the more I read about Islamic history and the spread of Islam, um, I begin to see, you know, that they begin to indigenize these terms. They begin to use the language of the people. And through that, the religion ultimately spreads. And I think, um, uh, and I'd be interested to hear if you come, you came across any, any of that research in your research in Sicily. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the relationship between uh, the Sicilians uh, and the Muslims is, is, is also very fascinating. And I, I think it needs to be studied in more detail. How did Islam spread in, in, in uh, Islamic Spain? And how did Islamic, Islam spread in, in Sicily? Uh, and looking at, uh, for example, even looking at the roots of many of these scholars of Sicily. Uh, how many of them were Arab? Uh, even in Spain, there's prominent individuals who, con who, who were originally converts to Islam. And then they became Muslims. Uh, then, they, uh, then they took on Islam. And then they became prominent scholars in, uh, in, from Islam. Uh, today, I think most, most Sicilians have some Islamic blood in them hmm. or have some Muslim blood in them. Uh, so it, it is a fascinating uh, relationship uh, how, how Islam empowered the local people. When Islam hmm. came, uh, it empowered the local people uh, how they then uh, not, not only did they take on Islam, but then they became defenders of Islam. I think that aspect, and they became revivers of Islam. So I think maybe tying this back to the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad the concept of being Islamic revivers and having people from various backgrounds that alhamdulillah, the door is open to anyone. Right? Any person from any ethnicity, if they want to become Muslim, if they, not only do they want to become, become Muslim, they want to become a defender of Islam, they want to become a hero of Islam, the door is open to absolutely anyone. And I think, as, as you mentioned earlier about, uh, for, for example, uh, Salahuddin Ayyubi, or uh, as you mentioned about some of these great individuals, they weren't Arabs. Mm -hmm. And I think you will find heroes from every single ethnicity mm -hmm. and from every single background. Uh, and and that's what, I think that's the beauty of Islam. Right? Mm -hmm. When you talk about this cosmopolitan, diverse background, uh, we have prominent individuals in history uh, who were not Arabs. How many mm -hmm. people know Salahuddin Ayyubi was not Arab? Mm -hmm. and what was his background? Kurdish. Mm -hmm. Tariq bin Ziyad, where we talk about Islamic Spain. The conqueror of Islamic Spain was not Arab. He was Berber right? from, uh, from, from Morocco, uh, or from Maghreb. And then going throughout the list, uh, many of these prominent individuals uh, they came, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, for example, Suleiman al-Qanuni, as we know, they, they have uh, European blood in them, right? They have, mm -hmm. uh, or they, they have Turk blood in them. Uh, even uh, Khairuddin Barbarossa, I, I'm, I'm doing some research on him. Uh, he, he was really Greek. He came from the island of Lesbos, mm -hmm. right? So, and his parents were, uh, he came, his great-grandfathers weren't Muslim, right? He had Greek blood in him. So I think just that equal opportunity any individual who, who's inspired by this, who's inspired by history, uh, no matter what their culture is, no matter what their language is, no matter what their ethnicity is, right? in, in Islam, that, that, that door is open. Mm -hmm. That door is open. And, 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 and as you mentioned earlier, uh, incorporating the local people, indigenizing them, right? That, uh, that the local people are, were, 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 had the freedom and were encouraged to stand up. We're encouraged to become great Islamic scholars. We're encouraged to take part in the government. We're encouraged to, to be, be good contributors to civilization and, and, and to serve Islam. 
mm-hmm. I think and studying, I, I think that itself is a topic that, that we can analyze. Uh, looking at the, the great great heroes and Islamic scholars in Sicily and, and, and Spain and tracing their roots mm-hmm. and seeing, okay, how many of them were technically Arabs? How many of them were Berbers? Uh, and, and how many of them were, were, were converts or pe- people who ended up converting to Islam? And kind of also kind of to add to that, in Spain, uh, there's a specific Arabic, uh, you can say, I, what do you call it? There's a suffix and pre- pre- prefix. Suffix, I think, is for the end of the word, right? Yeah. yeah. So, for example, the converts, the, the converts, Islam had a separate uh, thing added to them. Un, un in there. Ibn Hafsun. Hmm. So even Ibn Khaldun, I, I, you, you, someone can do further research on this. That that un added in the end was generally a sign that they converted to Islam, right? That they were hmm. uh, they were incorporated in Islam, uh, and and there there are many famous individuals, right? There are many famous individuals. Go through all the the list of history, uh, go through the list of scholars and prominent individuals in Spain. You'll find many individuals with that with that uh, prefix, sorry, suffix add, added to their names. Mm-hmm. And I, I think another important thing, Mustafa, is when we talk about you know, these these great things within Islamic history, whether in the realm of inventions, whether in the realm of these heroes, um, I think many of these things that we talk about in history are applicable today. And we had we still we have figures who, you know, you know, for lack of better terms, they 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 fit the same archetype um as some of these people. So for instance, um when it, when we talk about these great um figures who converted to Islam and indigenized it and felt that there was no contradiction between you know their ethnicity their culture with their religion um in the united states we have many famous examples we have the great malcolm x rahimahullah um who understood he said in his speeches he knew that he was muslim first most but that didn't erase his black identity right muhammad ali was the same exact thing who understood that you know he was a muslim first most um and he you know he had daily you know daily he would recite the quran but he understood that there were problems specific to his ethnicity and that there was no need to discard it, right? And I think in contemporary times, perhaps one figure who um, has become very prominent and has and is really credited as reviving Islam in the West um, is another convert, which is Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Yes. Um, so these figures, I think they keep coming over and over again and Allah um, sends them to ensure that the religion will spread. And it's very interesting that it's, it's you know the converts have that zealousness yeah. uh, when they usually come in and they want to do all these big things and so um, I think in today's age many of the many of our fellow convert um, brethren and sister are behind many of the great initiatives and the great books that are being published in the West. Yeah, and then it's it's definitely it's a, it's amazing it's a fascinating trend uh, and and also shows there there's uh, there's there's no kind of glass ceiling. There's no restriction. Uh, if someone wants to f- thrive in the field of knowledge, in da'wah, uh, Islamic activism, uh, Islamic education, uh, th- there's, there, there's, there's no limits. Uh, mashallah, we've seen some of the more beautiful reciters, Hafid al-Quran, mashallah, who converted to Islam, uh, m- many of my friends as well. Uh, and, and just seeing, uh, even in the madrasas in America, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see some, some of my classmates were African-American converts to Islam. Uh, I know white converts to Islam. Uh, I know Mexican brothers, mashallah, who, who are also studying. Mashallah, I also know Puerto Rican brothers as well. And just seeing the different backgrounds that uh, pe- people are taking on Islam. Uh, they, and, and 
that that seriousness that seriousness should come from us uh, i remember one of my when i was ready to go study islam overseas we're talking about the year uh 1998 right that, that's when i left america and to go overseas i had a convert friend uh, who left two years before me and he was younger than me right it's a long story who he is and his background i'd rather not discuss it right now he's famous uh but he, he I, at the time i was uh, I think I was, let's say, 18. He was 16. And I'm watching him. He's like, I'm going to leave everything. I'm going to go Yemen to study Islam and to study Arabic. I'm like, right. he's a Muslim for one year. Mm-hmm. right? And he's ready to leave everything behind. He's ready to go overseas. And I'm sitting here as a born Muslim. I'm like, man, I'm being left back. I'm, I'm left, <laughs> being left behind. Uh, so it, it is a very, very fascinating trend. And I think going back to another relevant point to discuss would be Right? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to indigenizing uh, as well, that in order for us to make an impact and to, even the example you gave of Japanese and, and the language issues, in order for us to make an impact in the world today, in order for us to revive Islam, in order for us to make Islam uh, relevant and understandable for the local people, we're going to have to take steps to really properly understand the environment we're living in. And to properly understand the context we're living in, the language, the culture that we're living in, right? And th- this is the statement of Ibn Abidin Shami and others. That person who does not understand the pe- the people of his time and the culture of his time, that person is ignorant. And making that connection between that Islamic knowledge and the people of the time, the culture of the time, the norms of the time, the language of the time, the trends of the time. And I think the people who are successful. Uh, and, and the people who are able to make the greatest impact, they're the ones who really understand the people mm-hmm. and understand their psychology, understand their mindset, understand their needs and present Islam to them in a way that appeals to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, uh, just to close, you know, one of my friends uh, said that um, the the hallmark of a faqih, of a true um uh, how would you translate faqih? Like a expert in fiqh or yeah, 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 yeah. Ex- like, expert in Islamic law, yeah. It's not somebody who gives rulings, but he said that the true faqih is the one who is a master sociologist. Interesting. That's very fascinating. Because you have to know the urf, the custom of the yes. people. You need to know that in in one instance, you know, if you give them a ruling which is too hard, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna, you know, speak to them in their language, yeah. right? In a manner in which they understand using perhaps their terminology, um, seeing the things that they're watching, knowing, you know, we have this TikTok phenomenon, right? How can how can we use our teachings and spread them through a medium like TikTok? And I think the one who does that is ultimately the one who's most successful. Yeah. And maybe just tying this back, uh, uh, I, I, I met with Sheikh Hamza uh, a f- few years ago. He had an event at Saytuna. Right? So I just briefly went to him, uh, greeted him. And I remember him tying it, doing those private conversations, him tying it all back to languages as well. And him mentioning, well, my, uh, he, he, he's saying it comes back to grammar and language uh, and he summarizes some of the issues going on in the Muslim Ummah uh, right now trace back to language and the use of uh, proper language and knowing mm-hmm. your language and no, knowing grammar he didn't mention this verse of the Quran but I'll mention it now mm-hmm. so I think language plays a key role uh, and n- not only language mastering that language uh, can, can, you, can you translate the ayat? Okay, well, sorry. Uh, we did not send a prophet except who he, he spoke the language of his people. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so American English is different from British English. Uh, aluminum, aluminium, right? <laughs> and and now the language of the people, the academic language is different from the language of the people. Uh, and being able to present things uh, with the same terminology, the same uh, even uh, word usages that people are using, uh, and e- even the... the, the even the academic terms or the common terms they're seeing in their podcasts, in their uh, in their in their books, in their in their TV shows, etc. Uh, language is really important, and how you present Islam uh, using that language is really important. Mufti Rafi Usmani also emphasized mastering the English language. Right? Hmm. If, if, for example, if I I'm giving you an example, if if an educated person comes to the masjid and he listens to a lecture, and the lecture has mistakes in English grammar that's not going to have a good impression on the individual. So mm-hmm. mastering the English language and mastering the language of the countries that we live in is also extremely important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what happened in, in the instances of Japan and China is um, rather, because one of the things they mentioned in the article is when the Protestants came, they said, we're just going to use the word God. Um, <laughs> uh, the Protestants came later, but when the Catholics came, they said, let's just use the word God. And it wasn't resonating with them. And then when the Muslims came and the Muslims introduced their terminology when they, and they indigenized it, then they began to use it. This is why some people argue that um, in today's age and living in the West, um, when speaking to non-Muslims, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's perhaps better to use the word God. Um, and because some of them still think we worship, you know, that Allah is this, you know, some, some people have Moon strange God. Yeah. Some people about think Islam. Yeah, some people think our God is different from, the, from Allah is different from God because... Uh, because just the the Arabic the different we're using a different word, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, but but when you use the same word with them, because language because words have meanings, mm-hmm. right? And there's connotations attached to a word. So if I speak to a non-Muslim and I say Allah, they there's a lot of baggage that's coming. Unfortunately, there's a lot of baggage that's coming with them. There's a lot of connotations. Whereas if we if, if we say, for example, if we say the word Sharia to them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of baggage that the word unfortunately has. Whereas if you say perhaps Islamic law, if you say yeah. God, then there, th- th- those connotations are not attached. And then slowly you can go through a process of trying to re-brainwash them. Yeah. And, as, and, and maybe the, the, the other lesson that we can derive from this, uh, you, you just presented a case study in a, a real life situation where just changing the word, right? As the Quran says, Rahman. Right, uh, Allah has m- multiple names. If you want to call him Rahman, you want to call him Allah. Mm-hmm. Right, you have you have that choice. But the the point is, if such a minor adjustment, right, that if you use the word Allah, then uh, uh, limited about people converted Islam, and just by changing, if you if it's documented, just by changing the dawah or the the message to these Japanese individuals from from the word using the word Allah to the, the 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 Japanese word that you pointed out, if that minor change was instrumental in additional people converting Islam, then we we, we realize the importance of how the message is presented, mm-hmm. and taking care to present the, the message in the best way possible, mm-hmm. right? Using using the best methods, using the most effective methods uh, to uh, make Islam appealing to that person, and to make that person uh, be comfortable with Islam. Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing is if you read some of the academic literature on Islam, for example, the arguably the biggest academic scholar on Islam is actually not a Muslim, which is Wail Halaq. Um, and his books are, have become so prominent 
and he has he has given access to people's understanding of his, he has increased people's understanding of Islamic law. The way he's done it is he's he's translated a lot of these terms in usul al-fiqh and fiqh using English terminology. And so the Western lawyer reads it and he says, oh, this is just like our law. You know, we have this, we have the, the same terms, like the way he translates, I think, like illa, I think it's like a ratio legis, which is a, <laughs> which is a term they use in Western law. And that gives access now. So this, I think this is, this is obviously a much, much bigger topic. Um, but the topic of indigenization and the topic of trying to speak to people with their language. Um, and what's, what's one of the, one of the, Miracles, I think, of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. One of the things which I find so fascinating is that when he would go to call different tribes to Islam, is he would speak in their dialect. <laughs> Subhanallah! Like he he didn't just speak Arabic, but he spoke in their specific dialect, trying to show them that that I am one of you, that I know you very well. It's like it's like imagine you go to the to the UK and you start using U, UK slang, yeah. right? So I think I think this is the brilliance of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam of understanding that language matters and we need to be speaking to people in their correct language. Yes, mashallah, mashallah. Yeah. Okay. With that, I think we will conclude, Mufti Saab. Um, I encourage everybody, um, if people are interested in this topic, to do more research. Um, inshallah, hopefully, we will place some resources um, in the description. Perhaps some of our favorite books and some of our lectures and so forth um if there's any last words you want to say mufti Saab, please go ahead yeah uh, so I, maybe, maybe i'll end with this uh, expression uh, it's it's a arabic proverb i'm not sure who it's attributed to but our teachers used to mention all the time i think this summarizes everything we've, we've been mentioning the relationship between western civilization and islamic civilization the contributions of uh, how the Muslim world initiated the process and the Western world completed the process or uh, took the process to the next level. Uh, also the contributions of uh, Muslims in Sicily, also the contributions of Muslims in Spain. And the opportunity for us to, to make contributions in today's era. So this, the, the Arabic proverb is, Kam awwal al how many projects did, or how many ideas or innovative ideas or projects did the people uh, of the earlier generation, leave for us. Hmm. So meaning the door is not closed. So, for, so for example, we, uh, we might have heard of the great civilization of uh, Andalus. We might have heard of the great contributions of the scholars of Sicily, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot more work to le left. And the new discoveries that they made, uh, the new research that they presented, uh, the opportunity is still there for us today to do more groundbreaking research, do more pioneering research, and to write more pioneering books. And the ideas and the projects are, are many. And maybe the, so anyone who's interested, uh, students of history, students of knowledge, inshallah, I'll give you guys some ideas. Right? I have 25 book projects I'm working on right now. My, my, my plate is full. <laughs> but hopefully, inshallah, maybe we can, we can inspire someone here uh, to take on some of these projects and maybe this podcast can be a means of uh, books being written uh, or re uh, new innovative research being done. Right? So maybe I'll just leave it with a few ideas. So uh, one idea, an English biography of uh, Asad ibn Farat, the founder of Islamic Sicily. Right? I, I've looked, looked online in English. There's articles of five pages. There's no book on his life. Right? Most, the whole world needs to know who 
uh, Asad ibn Furatis. Right? A second idea, uh, specifically a, a, a book written by a Muslim. So the, the challenge I saw in reading these academic books, uh, because they're, they're, they're taking away the spirit of Islam, the academic books are kind of are, are very negative. And you, even myself, I was kind of, um, I lost some inspiration when reading through them. Uh, mm. So maybe a, a simplified book, right, meant for the average person, not, not at a high academic level, Muslims in Sicily. Meant maybe for a middle school, a uh, high school audience, right? Uh, kind of simplified book, the main contributions, the main scholars, the main heroes, uh, and, and just a s simplified history of Islamic Sicily. I haven't seen such a book that exists. Then as a follow-up, a uh, th third idea, specifically the academic life and the academic contributions of Muslims in Sicily, in all fields. Right? Today, we, we've only been able to really uh, touch the surface, but when, when we're talking about tafsir, uh, we're talking about Quran, we're talking about hadith, fiqh, the contributions of these scholars and the books that they wrote. Right? So someone that, that can maybe summarize it and translate to English. Uh, and maybe, maybe a book just on the scholars, the heroes of Andalus, the, uh, the heroes of Sicily, the prominent Muslim uh, individuals of Sicily. Uh, th that, that would also be important as well. And maybe more about Idrisi. Right? Sharif Idrisi, I haven't, th there might be a few articles, but his book and, and just on his book and the contribution of his book, that's, that's a PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. The contribution of his book, the importance of his book, the role it played, and who is Idrisi. So maybe a biography about Idrisi in English as well. Mm -hmm. And these, these are just a few ideas, right? There's there's many more ideas that you can think of. Uh, these are just a few, a few, a few ideas. And so, if so anybody is interested in taking on any of these uh, projects, please feel free to contact Mufti Sab or or feel free to contact me, um, and I can make that connection. Um, sure. But thank you so much, Mufti Sab. It was an excellent conversation happy to have you on um and inshallah we'll have you on sometime again in the future inshallah thank Zafra you everybody for hosting for listening. Me. um please subscribe and uh let us know your feedback um on the podcast jazakumallah khairan assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa